I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. Uh, this week, we are following up a little bit on what we talked about last week. Uh, we're going to look at Karl Marx's writing called The Critique of the Gotha Program, and we'll say more about what that is shortly. It's a pretty good follow-up to the stuff we we're talking about with the Communist Manifesto, and we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but first, we are recording this episode early because I'm going to go on a, on a big, fun trip with my friends. And uh, that, in, in light of that, we're going to make some uh, some predictions about what we might uh be talking about in in a few weeks when we come back so matt any hot takes uh what do you think is going to happen based on just what you know today yeah let's see so it's august 8th when we're recording this right now so you're listening to this far in the future already (laughs) so chances are the things i'm about to say have already happened i think it's a pretty good chance so uh let's see uh alex jones he will have sort of surrendered to the forces of cultural Marxism, and he'll just switch sides completely. And now he's a communist. That sounds about right. Uh, I could really see that happening. Finally, just embracing the wave of uh, gay frogs and chemtrails, uh, just giving up and, and releasing his body to uh, all of those cultural forces. That sounds right to me. Yeah, that's right. And uh, bone broth from each, according to their ability. <laughs> uh also to fill the void surely jack from twitter will take over that role <laughs> yeah that's true now uh jack from twitter has his own show about chemtrails <laughs> info battles In- info battles yeah <laughs> knowledge conflicts uh yeah what do you think the pope's been up to since uh since we recorded this uh well just uh tying into that good alex jones content i'm sure alex jones was right that the pope is a, a new linen that seems about right and it's about time for him to finally just uh you know let that all hang out so probably in a couple weeks maybe he'll have reached you know a full agreement with the people's uh republic of china uh with some good party members as bishops um some good bishops as party members and everything will be just a, a beautiful catholic communist uh, moment uh at that point in time i think yeah, that sounds right to me. Well, actually, uh, okay, here's my final prediction for what's going to be like in two weeks. Uh, still just the same old capitalist hellscape that it is now. <laughs> uh, but sorry to bother you, we'll still be in theaters. Ooh, That's my prediction. I hope so. That would be the best. Yep. 
I think it's actually true. I think they made enough money to make it through Labor Day, actually. I might be wrong about that, but that's what I thought I'd see. Oh, that's great. I hope that they make a gazillion dollars. For real. Probably not even Uh, a real amount. I don't even know. But um, (laughs) I hope that's how much they make. One precise gazillion, please. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cool. Well, uh, we'll see how those predictions check out in three weeks, I guess. And uh, let's just cut right over to talking about the Gotha program. So uh, a recurring theme through some of our past discussions has been how the Communist Manifesto, just like any piece of writing, requires a a hermeneutic project. Um, Hermeneutic project is just a a fancy way to say that it has to be interpreted. Um, We have to find faithful and good ways to interpret it. So just like you have to have a hermeneutic of the Bible, uh, or even your favorite novel, the Communist Manifesto, you know, it needs someone to kind of keep thinking it through, and you've got to keep pulling more things that help you illuminate parts of it that you might not get on a first or second or third read. So to do that a little more in depth, we're going to try to take some time to consider this kind of funny piece of writing from Marx called The Critique of the Gotha Program. Um, it's not so much an essay, I guess, as a, a like line-by-line roast <laughs> of a potential program for a political party um, for uh, the Democratic Socialists of, of Germany at the time. And it's a helpful piece uh, in Marx's writing in his corpus because he says a lot of really explicit things about labor and the role of the state. So all the things that people uh, tend to get upset at, uh, upset about with respect to Marxism and Marx and Marxists, um, he goes out of his way to help you understand what he's actually trying to say. Yeah, it's definitely an illuminating text, I think, um, especially considering some of like the the vague or just like the statements that need interpreting from the manifesto. Uh, this gives you a lot more explicit answers about things. Like Dean said, it is a potential program for a political party. Uh, so it has like a kind of weird history. It's not an essay. It's like kind of like a letter. I mean, honestly, if you read it, it's kind of like being on Reddit and seeing people like quote back and forth uh, and like just be mean to each other. It's kind of that sort of <laughs> feel. Um, well, so uh, here's a little bit of the history behind it. In 1875, there was a Congress of different working class parties in Germany, like Dean said, sort of like the Democratic Socialists of the time. Uh, the goal of this Congress was to unite the disparate parties into one general German Workers' Party. So it seems like a thing that Marx should be interested in. He's kind of interested in it, and he's interested in roasting them at least. Some of the folks attending wrote up what they had intended to be a program for the potential party. It's also worth noting that the program was really heavily influenced by another communist who was popular at the time. He was part of the uh, uh, the international, um, and there's a lot of stuff going on with him. Anyways, there's a guy named Ferdinand LaSalle. Ferdinand LaSalle is noted to be <laughs> a very fancy man, a fancy dresser, <laughs> a peacock of a man. He was very vain, says a source. <laughs> Says Wikipedia. Yeah, some like some early biographer, I guess. Yeah, this is uh, directly from uh, Wikipedia, that illustrious uh, website. Um, some early biographer apparently says that he like liked to compare himself to Socrates and Martin Luther and a number of other kind of big time guys. And that was his deal. Just a big, big vain dude. Um, and he was also a member of the Communist League with Marx and Engels, uh, who, you know, they put together the manifesto for that uh, organization. So uh they have a long history together right uh the wikipedia page also unrelated it's not really a necessary thing for the story but i like it a lot (laughs) the wikipedia says that he had a had an unsuspected death 
<laughs> but he died of he died in a duel. Like that's not unsuspected at all. <laughs> like that's like uh, premature. I think it says, oh, which is also very funny. Premature. Okay, but I mean, like you're planning on doing something <laughs> where there's like a chance you're gonna die. Like it's not premature. That's like just that's you planning a situation where. Okay, whatever. Uh, let's it's pretty immature, really, <laughs> if you think about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, LaSalle died in a duel. Sorry, LaSalle, that sucks. Uh, he died before um, he could read this document, which is probably good because uh, Marx would have roasted him to death. Uh, <laughs> anyways, throughout the entire uh, critique, Marx bemoans LaSalle's influence because it's all over it. Um, there's all kinds of turns of phrase and like bits of rhetoric that are attributable directly to LaSalle's influence. Um, and uh, Marx takes just delight in ripping him a new one from the grave. <laughs> it's good. Um, and since he was such a fancy, vain man, I guess it's just like, makes me feel good too. Like he's finally getting what, what he deserves. Not really. It's... <laughs> I feel a little bad for him. Yeah. Like, uh, I get the impression that he's just like, um, maybe like a little bit too naive. Uh, and that's like his big problem. He's just like, maybe a little bit more concerned with uh, looking really nice and, and handsome. Uh, when he should have been a little more concerned about like the class uh, character of the state or something like that. Yeah. But who knows? I, I didn't know him yet. I know me either. I mean, he's probably okay. <laughs> um, well, anyways, so based on LaSalle's takes, the uh, the people sort of proposing this program put together, um, you know, this thing called the Gotha program. It was going to be presented in a town called Gotha. So that's why it's called that. Um, they sent it off to Marx in trying to get like his like seal of approval. And Marx just completely obliterated it and like <laughs> completely obliterated it in like the most like just critical sense. Like he goes line by line through it. Like he starts off the very first line and then gives like, you know, two or three paragraphs of why it's wrong. Um, it's that's why I guess it's so fun because it's just like Marx being mean and kind of nitpicky <laughs> um, to, you know, some well-meaning, but, but kind of dense socialists. So uh, as we move through this, we'll read um, we'll read like a take from the Gotha program, and then we'll get into Marx's criticism of it. So we'll kind of read both parts, and you can hear the back and forth. Yeah, it is pretty rough. Um, just to get into it, though, to start out, uh, I want to take maybe a little bit to chat about a letter that Marx wrote um, that Engels published with the critique of the Gotha program. So, like, originally this was a, a background that they, you know, kept together. Um, and in it, like, I don't know, there's a, there's a bunch of kind of boring or relevant pieces, but one maybe helpful part of his, of, uh, understanding why Marx is being so pedantic and nitpicky is revealed there. So let's talk about that for a sec. So Marx writes, uh, every step of real movement is more important than a dozen programs. That's a really good line. Get that <laughs> tattooed on your body. Um, but by drawing up a program of principles, uh, one sets up before the whole world landmarks by which it measures the level of the party movement. So this is, you know, kind of a general theory <laughs> of uh, of why programs are both important, but also kind of dangerous. Um, and Marx goes on to talk about how the desire to unify the workers is really important, um, but you can't unify them at the cost of, uh, like, compromises and kind of forcing people to, like, agree to it too soon just for the sake of, of unity so i think that's a helpful way to kind of come into the document because the reason that he is being so thorough and careful and nitpicky is because he thinks it's actually really important to get this right and like it is a bit much <laughs> for sure um but it's also reasonable that marx would be 
you know, genuinely kind of upset about it and like um, not want to be someone who just like took for granted that, well, this is the program we're going to unify around. So like, let's all do it. Right. Uh, this is a, a real question that I don't know the answer to. So don't turn it around on me. Um, but I wonder how much <laughs> of that sort of caution is because of the experience that he had with the Communist Manifesto. Yeah, it's a good question. Just gotta, that I also don't know the answer just to. Just got think about it, you know. <laughs> hmm. Indeed. Uh, well, we'll put a pin in that, and uh, someone who knows more about it than us can just email us. So let's go ahead and dive in. Um, probably no better place to start than the start, than the beginning. Uh, so Marx starts the critique of the Gotha program, talking about the first uh, part of the program and the Goethe program reads like this. I'm going to read this little sentence kind of in full because Marx keeps sort of breaking it down into different component parts. So the Goethe program states labor is the source of wealth in all culture. And since useful labor is possible only in society and through society, the proceeds of labor belong undiminished with equal right to all members of society. Uh, so that probably doesn't sound too bad. I don't know. I guess I'm just like not smart enough to understand why it's bad at first glance. I feel the same but, way. Uh, Marks, Marks helps you do that. I, I mean, honestly, <laughs> if uh, if this was not in the context of Marks like ripping on it, I would have said like, mm, that's just that sounds like Karl Marx to me. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. But, uh, the problem here uh, is that I'm a yeah. dingus and don't know any better. But luckily, uh, <laughs> Marx is here to tell us what's up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I do think what is funny is like, so I probably would have just uncritically accepted this, uh, these lines, um, you know, decontextualized or whatever. But I do think that Marx is genuinely convincing. Yeah, and compelling. No, I agree. Um, yeah. So let's dive in. Matt, uh, what's your favorite sort of uh, Marxian hot take on this uh, first sentence? Or at least what what's an early hot take that you appreciate? Because he like comes back to different parts of this uh, this formula all throughout the, the document. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of reoccurring. Um, okay, so the very first part of that sentence, labor is the source of all wealth and culture, is Marx's first target. And this is like, I, like I said, it's like kind of nitpicky, kind of pedantic, but you're not wrong. It is convincing. So Marx responds to labor is the source of all wealth and culture by saying labor is not the source of all wealth. Nature is just as much the source of use values, and it is surely of such that material wealth consists as labor, which itself is only the manifestation of a force of nature, human labor power. So, uh, okay, so Marx is correcting, uh, correcting the initial take. Labor is the source of all wealth and culture. No, labor and nature are the source of all wealth and culture. Which, like, <laughs> <Nerd>. yeah, like, <laughs> which, okay, like, it seems pedantic, but actually it's a good point. Like, um, yeah. nature is part of it. I mean, like, that is the means by which labor is done or upon. So I think it's worth pointing out. Um, in this uh, this day and age of those crazy speculative philosophies like new materialism, people are always like, hmm, think about nature more, though. And Marx does here. So it's cool. Yeah, uh, I think it's also cool because and he mentions this uh, a little bit further down um, by emphasizing the nature part. He's also trying to cut through a certain laziness in like bourgeois thinking about labor. So if you think of like, think of just any capitalist that, you know, who tries to defend capitalism, it often centers on this totally decontextualized myth of how humans interact with each other. So it's like, hey, what if two people met in a field and one had like 10 berries and another one had like five pieces of 
garbage. Like, how are they going to negotiate, like, trading or not trading those things? So it's, like, a completely abstracted world in which, like, you know, people just, like, have stuff, I guess, and then they make these conscious, you know, voluntary decisions to give them to each other or not. Um, And Marx is like, that's not how anything works. There's a lot more going on underneath those forms of exchange. And I think that's a really important thing to point out. Um, It also... I think this point stems from what Marx had already written a long time ago uh, in Capital. Uh, In the first volume, he says, uh, We see then that labor is not only the source of material wealth of use values produced by labor. As William Petty puts it, labor is its father and the earth its mother. And that point is carried through uh, Capital because it makes a huge difference. Like, um, it isn't just labor that creates value, and it also isn't just uh, nature that creates value. It's this kind of metabolism or dialectic involved in those uh, uh, those two contributing factors. Yeah, right. And if you're going to be a materialist, you might as well think about like how it actually happens, not just right. not just two people meeting in a field. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, like you know Rousseau and Locke and all those dudes. They need to think about uh, nature a little bit more. That's right. Not just the state of nature. God, they suck. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay, what's what's another take that the Gotha program makes that is bad? So the uh, let's hit on maybe just like a different part of that first sentence that we read. Um, so one thing that comes up is uh, the proceeds of labor are undiminished with equal right mm-hmm. to all members of society. So the undiminishment of labor undiminishment i don't know if that's a word but you know what i mean (laughs) yeah um that is actually a thing that marx takes issue with in a number of different ways and all of them are very interesting i think um so yeah uh part of it has to do with uh what exactly it means to have your labor or the proceeds of labor be undiminished and marx thinks that is a really complicated sort of thing yeah um I'm going to let you talk about the the labor voucher bits, Matt, because uh, you were excited about that before we recorded the episode. Yeah, um, sure. And uh, I'll talk about another thing after that. I love labor vouchers. That's all me. <laughs> the take here is that useful labor is only possible in society and through society. The proceeds of labor belong undiminished with equal right to all members of society. Okay, so um, this term undiminished, undiminished proceeds of labor is, is an important one. It's like sort of a piece of rhetoric that is, you know, LaSalle. That's the that's like one of the fingerprints of Ferdinand Fancy Boy LaSalle. Um <laughs> died prematurely LaSalle. Um anyway. Undiminished fanciness. Undiminished that's right. And like the the rhetoric makes sense, like sort of from the from the perspective of language, it's good, right? Like communism is one where workers get undiminished return, uh, you know, get the undiminished proceeds of their labor, right? Like you work and then you get all of that back. That's like, that's like, you know, supposed to be a very, it's a very communist sort of idea, but Marx breaks it down and complicates it because Marx is again, not like a utopian communist, but a real materialist communist. This is what Marx says in response. Uh, It's kind of long, so I'll try to shorten it down. Uh, Marx says the individual producer receives back from society after the deductions have been made exactly what he gives to it. What he has given to it is his individual quantum of labor. For example, the social working day consists of the sum of the individual hours of work. The individual labor time of the individual producer is part of the social working day contributed by him, his share in it. Um, He receives a certificate from society that he has furnished such and such an amount of labor. 
And with the certificate, he draws from the social stock of means of consumption as much as the same amount of labor cost. The same amount of labor which he has given to society in one form, he receives back in another. Okay, the point here is is actually way more simple than Marx uh, makes it out to be. So uh, a worker gives gives their labor to society. Like, you know, they work to, to contribute mm-hmm. something for everybody um, because, like, working is a social good. But, like, the, the, the laborer, the worker can't just, like, get all of that money, like, not all of that money back, but the proceeds of that labor back directly because then, like, that would just be, like, a very bourgeois individual sort of thing right since since one's work is good for the society as a whole like it is um you know diminished in the sense that like that labor has to go towards the the reproduction of the society over time however the worker does get something back um he gets like a certificate that says you've done this much work and it's worth this much right that's the idea of a labor voucher is where it's um a measurement of an amount of labor rather than like a wage or something like that. So yeah, it's not subject to like the whims of how much uh, profitable uh, labor you produce. Yeah, exactly. So anyways, um, a a worker, I mean, I guess actually does get their, the proceeds of their labor, but they aren't like undiminished in sort of like a one-to-one sense. Like some of your labor will end, like the profits of that labor will probably end up going to fund things like hospitals and schools and Marx lays all those things out that we'll talk about them in a minute. Um, but like uh, it's important, like those things don't just all come right back to you. They go out and like they reproduce society. And that is really important. Yeah, I think maybe one way to think about it, this just occurred to me, but it would be to say um, communism isn't about like you getting yours but it's about like uh us getting ours in a way right like the working class together is uh supporting itself yeah exactly um, not like individual workers uh surviving better than they used to or something like that yeah i think it's helpful to kind of lay it out in the way marx does just because like i don't know just just to make sure it doesn't sound utopian that like like listen right. in in an advanced communist country like it's not like you're going to be swimming in the proceeds of your labor or something. You're going to get what you need to get because like, and everyone else will do the same and, and good. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, why um, the undiminished part is complicated a little more. And I think this is really helpful. Um, I probably should have said this at the beginning of the episode, but one reason that the critique of the growth program is so interesting is that it is um, a window into like how at least certain Uh, mechanisms in communist society would actually work right so when someone's like yeah but like uh what's the alternative uh you can like point them to this document and be like well marx has a few ideas about that." okay but like (laughs) Um, if someone said that to you don't really point them to this document that would be a really mean joke (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay listen capitalist nerd like go read the gopher program (laughs) (laughs) right yeah okay don't do that but do understand what mark says there um so uh he here's how he kind of breaks down the undiminished bit um so he says actually like there are things that are going to get deducted from your uh the proceeds of your labor uh in particular so he does it in in two ways first uh he in both ways have sort of three deductions so the first deduction is he says first um there will be deduction for the cover for replacement of the means of production that are used up um so you got to fix all the stuff that you used to work 
Um, second for additional portion for expansion of production. So it's not like you're just maintaining uh, the levels that you have, but you actually do want to grow in a, a reasonable and sustainable way. And uh, third, uh, reserve or insurance funds to provide against accidents, dislocations caused by natural calamities, etc. So planning for the future, you've got to squirrel some of that labor uh, labor proceeds away. Um, I think those are really actually interesting uh, points because they're so immensely practical and like kind of boring uh, in a way that's really encouraging to me anyway. Um, and then uh, I'll go to the, the second um, set of... Uh, deductions as well so he says uh the uh these are deductions intended to serve as a means of consumption um so he says before uh this is divided among the individuals there has to be deducted again from it first the general costs of administration not belonging to production this part will from the outset be very considerably restricted in comparison with present day society and it diminishes in proportion as the new society develops, right? So that's just like somebody's got to figure all this stuff out and run it in a way that, you know, makes it work. And you have to pay those people to do that work. Um, and that's not necessarily productive labor. Uh, second, that which is intended for the common satisfaction of needs, such as schools, health services, etc. From the outset, this grows considerably in comparison with present day society. And it grows in proportion as the new society develops. So these are things that we have to have. And there's no reason that we can't have more of them and more access to them. And then third and last, he says, uh, funds for those who are unable to work. Um, in short, for what is included under so-called official poor relief today. And uh, I think that last line is especially important too, right? So it's not that like, uh, um, <laughs> it's not that like, okay, you you should work for sure in a communist society. But like Marx understands that like there are cases when people can't and you have to like find a way to be compassionate uh, systemically to those kinds of people. Um, so at least for me, like those kind of six deductions are like really interesting because they are uh, still like forward looking, right? They're not like extremely detailed, but they give you a sense of like actually what Marx is, is thinking about specifically. Yeah. Uh, I mean, basically, this is like a communist take on taxes, basically, right? Like, this yeah, is what the proceeds yeah. of your labor go towards. And, uh, you know, in the United States down here, I mean, up in Canada, Dean, I know that you all love taxes. Uh, but in the United States, people <laughs> hate taxes. <laughs> in case you didn't know. Uh, they, <laughs> I've heard that. They hate taxes. They hate that big government. But uh, these, like, six <laughs> things, these six deductions are, like, actually good things that are, like, pretty chill and I'd pay for it with no problem. Like, wouldn't it be buck wild to live in a society where uh, the proceeds of your labor, um, your taxes, went to, like, actually good things? <laughs> uh, in 2018, the United States uh, passed a uh, military defense budget of, like, $3.9 right. trillion dollars or something, you know, ridiculous. Like, I think that's actually a real number, not gazillion, like I said earlier. Um <laughs> but like you know, that's that is actually like that's like tax money, right? That's and that's stupid. Like I'd rather yeah. I'd rather just pay for people's hospital bills and their like school and um you know if they can't work unemployment whatever. Um, I mean you know it is also the case that um a communist society would also have to have a defense budget to uh, protect themselves against capitalists and, well, I'd pay for that too. That sounds good. Um, yeah, but like you know. It's different. It's a different feel to taxes here. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's like it's also just insane that like a trillion is literally an unfathomable amount 
of I mean, it might as well be a gazillion, honestly. I couldn't tell the difference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, like, I don't know. If you're going to have, like, you know, millions of millions, (laughs) like... Uh, you might as well um, invest them in things like schools or hospitals um, or like poor relief, right? Uh, and what I like about what Mark says is like the school stuff and all that kind of stuff, that stuff is going to get invested in more and more quickly in a communist society, presumably, because those are the things that people actually value. And uh, even while the administrative costs exist, uh, Marx thinks that those things are going to slowly dissipate as well, right? That's the uh, the withering away of the state. Um that's kind of the idea that he has there. Yeah. In all of those things uh, that, you know, those deductions, um, I mean, at the end of that last bit I read, um, Mark says, the same amount of labor which he has given to society is uh, one form he receives back in another, right? Those things that you, your the proceeds of your labor are deducted right. for, like, they're things that benefit you and everyone else. So, like, it's cool. So chill out. Uh, but Matt, but yes. Matt, what about my equal rights? My equal rights? Yeah, uh, okay, so back to that, that uh, original Gotha program take that we have not moved on from still. <laughs> uh, I'll read it again to refresh your memory. Useful labor is possible only in society and through society. The proceeds of labor belong undiminished with equal right to all members of society. Okay, so now the thing that Marx wants to talk about is, um, is equal rights. So we've talked about the word undiminished for, uh, you know, 20 minutes. Uh, let's talk about equal <laughs> rights. Okay, so an equal right to all proceeds of labor, to all members of society, is left undefined for Marx. And that is a problem. Um, just everyone and is not good enough. You need to be specific. Marx uh, even says, like, even the people who don't work, you'd give this to? Like, kind of, like, in response. Um, the problem is that Marx draws out is this. Uh, this is a quote. But one man is superior to another physically or mentally and supplies more labor in the same time or can labor for a longer time. And labor to serve as a measure must be defined by its duration or intensity. Otherwise, it ceases to be a standard of measurement. This equal right is an unequal right for unequal labor. It recognizes no class differences because everyone is only a worker like everyone else. But it tacitly recognizes unequal individual endowment and thus productive capacity as a natural privilege. Uh, so the the point that Marx is making here is pretty good, I think. It's worth making that, like, um, uh, equal right in this sense assumes equal ability, and that is not a good assumption. Um, it's, I mean, at one extreme, it's ableist. At another, at the other end of just, like, kind of casualness, it's like, well, not everyone can do the exact same thing, and that's fine, so you shouldn't try to make everyone fit in there. Um, so, uh, this parsing out of equal right is really interesting in the sense that it actually, um, creates inequality. Yeah. And I think to, uh, just noting that that's a problem, right? That to talk about equal rights is kind of a weird, uh, bourgeois problem that makes you just like we were talking about above with the sort of Catholic, uh, capitalist, uh, myth. It just makes you ignore all the, the contingencies of reality that exist underneath those kinds of uh, understandings. Right. So to avoid this issue of equal rights, or, or to like parse it out in a better way, um, Marx says this. To avoid all these defects, right, instead of being equal, would have to be unequal. <laughs> so like uh, in striving to make an equal <laughs> right, you've actually done the opposite. Um, but these defects are inevitable in the first phase of a communist society as it is when it has just emerged after prolonged birth pangs from a capitalist society. Right can never be higher than the economic structure of society and its cultural development condition thereby. Okay, so this is 
kind of an interesting point. So, um, I guess in the United States, we think of rights as inalienable, right? Like, that's, like, the big word that people use to describe rights, which is, uh, <laughs> I mean, theologically problematic, I think, for Christians in a lot of ways, but uh, that's ignored, and whatever. It's not important for right now, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, but Marx says right can never be higher than the economic structure of society, so rather than um, rights sort of being these things that hang over people and possibly create these other unequal situations, um, we should think of the economic structure first and then rights second. So Marx goes on to say some other things about equal rights um, and, their, and their bourgeois limitations. Uh, so Marx says, the right of the producer is proportional to the labor they supply. The equality consists in the fact that measurement is made with an equal standard of labor. So instead of holding everyone to the same standard, uh, people are held to their standard of what they can actually do. Um, this might sound actually really familiar to you. Maybe it sounds like another really familiar Marxist saying. Um, and it is uh, a very clunky elaboration of from each according to his ability to each according to their need. Uh, basically, that's, that's Marx's take on rights. Uh, so not one static right for all people, uh, but instead uh, rights according to their ability and uh, to according to their need. Yeah, and that, uh, Marx explicitly says in this document, too, is uh, the moment when he calls it uh, the narrow horizon of bourgeois right is crossed in its entirety. Um, so it's like this is an escape from the just the bourgeois concept of rights in general, which he thinks has been kind of inscribed in the Gotha program and shouldn't be fought for. Or to go back to um, what we said in the beginning with the letter that he opens the document with, um, the sort of expansion of bourgeois rights wouldn't be the the measure by which you would want to take stock of a party movement or a party program. Well, I guess we could just uh, move on now to a new, finally a new sentence. Yeah, we we Marx has taken care of one sentence so far. Okay, well the new sentence is this. This is a a take from the Goethe program. The emancipation of labor must be the work of the working class relative to which all other classes are only one reactionary mass. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> I mean, that is what Marx asks throughout this entire document. What does that even it's mean? It's a confusing <laughs> sentence. It's a confusing sentence. I don't understand exactly yeah. what that uh, is about. And now there's Marx, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what Marx says, though, right? Is like... Uh, this is he calls it a, a nonsense sentence, right? It's not um, not the kind of thing that makes sense of anything that's going on when you sort of look around, uh, at least at like German society in the 19th century. Right. So in critique, Marx says this from this point of view, therefore, it is again nonsense to say that it together with the bourgeoisie and the feudal lords into the bargain form only one reactionary mass relative to the working class. So that's Marx's objection here um is uh, at least one of them there's a few others that we kind of skip here because uh we only have so much time but uh that all other that all other classes form only one reactionary mass is kind of a problem because actually in especially in the sort of 19th century situation right the feudal lords that exist have sort of different interests than the capitalists than the bourgeoisie so dean what do you think about this critique does marx have it right yeah i mean i think so uh i think it's important to recognize the um you know, the nuance that's often present in Marx. And uh, this is also interesting because, as we talked about with the manifesto uh, last uh, in the last episode, 
Like, there are a lot of points in the manifesto that seem kind of, like, moving a little too quickly historically. Um, and even, like, glossing over, you know, maybe important distinctions or moments or things like that. Uh, but reading something like this, you do sort of see that Marx... It's not like Marx isn't alive to those distinctions. It's just that's not the kind of thing that you would put in a manifesto. <laughs> but it's exactly the thing that you would use to critique uh, <laughs> a document that exactly sort of runs, you know, too quickly over those distinctions. Yeah, totally. Uh, he even goes on to say a little bit later on... Um kind of as a joke he says has one proclaimed to the artisans small manufacturers and peasants during the last elections relative to us you together with the bourgeoisie and feudal lords form one reactionary mass right since the the, <laughs> the point is that like since the artisans uh the small manufacturers like and the peasants since they are not the proletariat they are they're necessarily part of the bourgeoisie or something and like that's not right. true at all right they're, those are all sort of distinct right. moving pieces within uh within a like a political situation so it doesn't make any sense um i mean same thing is probably true today that um there are a lot of classes kind of uh you know vibrating at different frequencies that have different concerns you can't just like lump them all together necessarily even though yeah even even though the current the current situation in capitalism has given us two large classes the bourgeoisie and the proletariat there are actually nuances to those things for sure uh, well, I know, Matt, uh, you had a sort of interest in drawing out a point uh, relative to this from the manifesto. Uh, so I want you to give you a chance to uh, flag that particular issue. Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. So in the Goethe program, they make a take that sounds good on the surface, but once Marx gets into it, it's actually a bad take. Um, so the Goethe program says this. The working class strives for its emancipation, first of all, within the framework of the present day national states, conscious that the necessary result of its efforts which are common to the workers of all civilized countries, will be the international brotherhood of all people. Um, so that's what the Gotha program says. And the manifesto actually says something that's kind of similar, but different in some important ways. So uh, one of my favorite lines from the manifesto, um, I think is actually ends up being kind of a big deal when it comes to like Maoist stuff later on. Um, this is a line that always echoes through my head, especially uh, like my memories from grad school are particularly strong here. I remember like one of my professors standing over me saying this line um, in class. Standing over <laughs> well, like, you, like you're on the floor and he's like, listen, <laughs> listen, idiot. No, it was like in class and he's like standing <laughs> up and I'm sitting down. So that's sort of teacher dynamic, if you will. Um, <laughs> yeah. So anyways, from the manifesto, Marx says this. Though not in substance yet in form, the struggle of the proletariat with the bourgeoisie is at first a national struggle. The proletariat of each country must, of course, first of all, settle matters with its own bourgeoisie. This is important because it's like the first signal of internationalism about communism here in sort of Marx's terms. Um, internationalism being the sense that like, uh, in the sense that capitalism is an international and global project that like... Uh, trade in one country is necessarily trade in another country right like these are things are all interlinked in a huge network of of trade um however when it comes to the proletariat struggling against these things uh their struggle is not in substance yet in form national so what this means is that like you know the the struggle first means dealing with like the, the way the bourgeoisie works in like a country in a specific place but like in form, it's about dealing with that national issue. Yet in substance, it's about dealing with that international phenomena that is capitalism. So that is, I think, uh, the, the point that Marx wants to make in this critique of the Gotha program is that um, the substance, the not in substance yet in form 
is different than just like you're working towards an international brotherhood of all people. It's like they're missing the point. Like, um, <laughs> like of course, like the proletarian struggle is an international struggle because capitalism is an international struggle. Um, so just like kind of boiling it down to like a nice feeling between people is just missing the point in all. Like the point here is like. <laughs> the proletariat have to deal with a, an international problem, but have to do it in a local place first. Not that like someday everyone will be great friends and just like, yeah, like different qualitatively. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it also makes me cringe to think of, uh, Mark's ever reading something like the, uh, Christians for socialism manifesto, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. He, he would be very mean to us and probably rightfully so. <laughs> <laughs> extremely mean um yeah uh so let's see uh what are some other gotham program takes i mean we've gotten through two specifically that we've named <laughs> um but there are a number of others that marks takes on at uh, varying intensities um let's see here's one uh the german workers party in order to pave the way to the solution of the social question demands the establishment of producers' cooperative societies with state aid under the democratic control of the toiling people. Uh, so there are a number of things going on here, um, but I think that uh, one thing that Marx is kind of going to worry about is uh, something that gets somewhat articulated among like syndicalists today. Obviously, uh, you know, real anarchists, uh, anarcho-syndicalists don't want state aid, right? That's like a major significant difference. Um, but the kind of like cooperative movement um, of syndicalists, uh, I think, does kind of come in the crosshairs uh, from Marx here. So uh, Marx writes in response this, that the workers desire to establish the conditions for cooperative production on a social scale and first of all on a national scale in their own country only means that they are working to revolutionize the present conditions of production. And it has nothing in common with the foundation of cooperative societies with state aid. But as far as the present cooperative societies are concerned, they are of value only insofar as they are the independent creations of the workers and not prodigies either of the government or of the bourgeois. So, I mean, the basic point here, uh, I think, is um, that, like, the state isn't just kind of a neutral arbiter where you could, like, make your own uh, cooperatives and, like, the state would be like, uh, you know, would say something like, hey, that's a good thing that you're doing. Like, keep that up. Um, instead, uh, and this is another kind of lesson from the manifesto, uh, you know, the state is the kind of thing that um, is managing the concerns of the bourgeoisie, right? Like it has class interests um, and it's not just uh, like waiting around for like workers to do something that they could support. It's actually trying to sort of stop workers from building a, a strong workers movement. And there's no sense in um presuming a more uh, cooperative relationship between the workers and the state under capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Um, what do you make of that bit at the end there where he says, uh, as far as present cooperatives go, uh, they are of value only insofar as they are independent creations of the workers and not protégés of either governments or the bourgeoisie. Uh, does that mean that, like, is that some wiggle room for anarchists? Maybe. I mean, it's definitely some wiggle, wiggle room for the creation of, like, dual power situations. Yeah, maybe. I guess that's true. Um, and, like, cooperatives, like he says, outside of the control of uh, the government of the bourgeoisie. Um, I mean, 
like it's good when workers can control insofar as they can uh you know their own fate and their own jobs and uh their own wages like I, that's undeniably like better than the alternative <laughs> uh under capitalism um but i think also the important point would be like that's good but you shouldn't be satisfied with it um for marx yeah i guess so we could probably draw a line from from this statement here to even his support for the paris commune you know that was like yeah, good yeah. example so i don't know definitely there you go anarchist there's something of interest here for you <laughs> <laughs> there you have hey, it that's it though sorry that's uh, all <laughs> uh let's see well there's a number of other things that we could talk about here um and there's a note that we want to end on together. But before we do that, I think it would actually be good to talk about the state here. And especially because we kind of promised to do that in the last episode uh, to return to, to some questions about the state. Um, so, yeah, I, Matt, I know that uh, you've got a lot of things to think and say about the state. Uh, and as somebody who is decidedly uh, left of me, according to the political compass, <laughs> um, I figure I should uh, hand that one over to you. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, okay. In the elaboration of the Gotha program, uh, one thing that they come back to a few different times is the idea of a free basis of the state. The free basis of the state, in quotation marks, is like this idea that comes up a few different times in the article, uh, in the article, in the letter, in the critique. I don't know what you'd even call it, um, but it comes up time and time again. So Marx is like wondering what what the word free means in the free basis of the state. And like, I don't know, rhetorically, you might get the idea that it means like the autonomy of the state or the autonomy of the people in the state or something. Uh, but Marx doesn't really know what it means. And I think he's right to ask the question, like, what does it mean to have a free state? Um, and then Marx says this. <laughs> uh, it is by no means the aim of workers who have got rid of the narrow mentality of humble subjects to set the state free in the german empire the state is almost as free as in russia freedom consists in converting the state from an organ superimposed upon society into one completely subordinate to it and today too the forms of the state are more free or less free to the extent that they restrict the freedom of the state so uh marx's conclusion here about the free state is that like uh no, the state is already too free. We need maybe a less free state. We we don't need a state that is like separated or like hovering over society, like administrating it. We need a state that is subordinate to society. And that's a good idea actually. Um I mean that is like a democratic idea, right? That like the state is not For is sure. not imposed upon society as a whole, but it is something that is derived from society that is, you know, gains its power its traction from society um so that's cool that's a good idea that's a an elaboration of the state that is um specific that you don't get in the manifesto and i like that a lot just like sort of an elaboration of where exactly the state gets its power from and kind of what it's there for and you get it all right here it's from society it's for it's for the people <laughs> within the society not to be over them but to be a, like among them or something yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, he also goes on to say after that, uh, what transformation will the state undergo in communist society? In other words, what social functions will remain in existence there that are analogous to present state functions? Between capitalist and communist society, there lies the period of the revolutionary transformation of the one into the other. 
Corresponding to this is also a political transition period in which the state can be nothing but the revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, and I think what's interesting is that there is a lot of emphasis placed on the transition period. Uh, so the withering away of the state thing, that's the thing a lot of people like to talk about, and it's important. Um, but maybe like equally or even more important is uh, noting the difficulties with which uh, some parts of the capital state come along for a little while and uh, some parts don't. And the intention is to kind of keep like shedding that skin uh, as far as you can, like as long as you go. Um, and I think that's really important, too. Right. That like what Marx thinks the state is, is not uh, like the American constitution with like three branches of government and they all like operate in this way, um, you know, for the good of like checks and balances and stuff like that. Uh, like there are clear interests involved in the dictatorship of the proletariat. And that's like advancing justice for working class people specifically. Uh, so, and, and also, uh, you know, the, the recognition that that's a temporary transitory sort of condition, a, a, a prolonged state of exception, I guess. Um, and I think that's something that you don't often get uh, in certainly like caricatures of Marxism, uh, but even like some kind of general like novice understandings of Marx. Certainly what I used to sort of think, I think, as like a, a budding Marxist. Yeah, totally. And I think it's such an important idea to figure out the the situation or orientation of the state when you're a communist or a socialist, because like. I mean, speaking of the caricatures of communism or the caricatures of socialism, you know, like, um, uh, you know, communism is when the state does things. The more things the state does, the more communist it is, right? That's like the sort of caricature. <laughs> um, I mean, that's right. like the that's like the social democrat kind of like democratic socialist uh, idea conception <laughs> of what it means to be a socialist. But what we see here is an right. important corrective. N no, the more things the state does is not the more communist it is. Uh, whether or not, uh, like you know, the the transformation of the state into something that serves the like the workers is what makes the state good for socialists. Um, and plus all the other stuff that we said earlier about deductions and taxes and stuff. <laughs> but like, you, I mean, you get you get what I mean. It's like the the state, uh, the state at like the the Marxist theory of the state is not to just sort of like leave it intact and then like make and and give people sort of like the democratic control of like welfare or something it's to completely transform the uh relationship between uh workers and the means of production yeah exactly and um not to uh be too partisan here but i think that actually there's an extremely good commentary on uh this particular um document from marx by lenin called the state and revolution uh, which specifically deals with the kind of withering away of the state stuff and um, I mean, that's important for a number of reasons, not least because the Soviet Union was a state trying to, you know, get to to communism. Uh, but Lenin kind of sums it up this way in a way that I think is really helpful. So he says, from the uh, from the moment all members of society or at least the vast majority have learned to administer the state themselves have taken this work into their own hands, have organized control over the insignificant capitalist minority, over the gentry who wish to preserve their capitalist habits, and over the workers who have been thoroughly corrupted by capitalism, from this moment the need for government of any kind begins to disappear altogether. The more complete the democracy, the nearer the moment when it becomes unnecessary. The more democratic the state, which consists of the armed workers, and which is no longer a state in the proper sense of the word, the more rapidly every form of state begins to wither away. Um, so there's a lot 
of other things that Lennon says that are really useful, I think, but that's like a good summary, right? That like, these are kind of, uh, this is a transformation of society completely, right? Um, it's not just like a different model of doing, uh, the same thing we're doing right now or something like that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not just, um, socialism isn't just capitalism with more perks. It's just like, it's a completely different thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, maybe that's partisan because it's Lenin, but like, I'm not a Leninist and I agree. So there you go. <laughs> take that take that <clears throat> political compass test <laughs> there you go uh all right so i think we should close on a note that is relevant to the themes of this podcast in particular on uh, religion and communism which comes up at the end of uh, this document um and in the context of freedom of conscience uh it kind of feels like it almost comes out of nowhere it's sort of like tacked on like a like an afterthought that marx had like ah i should probably deal with this really quick um, but it's important if you're a Christian to think about it. So, uh, I'll read it out and we can chat about it. So he writes freedom of conscience. Um, that's what he's dealing with. If one desired at this time of the culture comp, the cultural struggle to remind liberalism of its old catchwords, like freedom of conscience, it surely could have done, uh, could have been done only in the following form. Everyone should be able to attend his religious as well as uh, bodily needs without the police sticking their noses in. But the Workers' Party ought, at any rate in this connection, to have expressed its awareness of the fact that bourgeois freedom of conscience is nothing but the toleration of all possible kinds of religious freedom of conscience from the witchery of religion. But one chooses not to transgress the bourgeois level. Uh, so I had a little uh, trouble figuring this out, but Matt, you explained it to me in a really useful way uh, before we started chatting here. So uh, maybe I should let you just explain it again. Yeah, it's it's hard <laughs> Uh, it's hard, I think, as religious people to grapple with this kind of part of Marx. I think that we have to do a few things first. Like, we have to realize that, like, mm, Marx doesn't like religion, and that's okay. Like, <laughs> that's fine. He doesn't have to. He doesn't to. <laughs> have to. And, like, honestly, Marx would think that we're dumb as hell, probably. Um, but whatever, he's dead, too. Um, <laughs> so, like, what can he do about it? Um, nothing. But, uh, right. So, on the one hand, like... Um, you know, as a religious person, you might be thinking like, yeah, well, I really don't want the government sticking their nose into my religious worship. And I think that that impulse isn't necessarily bad. Like, if anything, people like Stanley Hauerwas and Shane Claiborne have really made me think about the role of the government in my church. Like, I don't even want an American flag in my church. Get out of here. However, on the other hand, um, it is the case that I do want the police sticking their noses. I mean, not the police, maybe. Uh, I wouldn't want the police at all. Um, I would like society to be transformed in such a way that the police don't have to exist. But, um, you know, it's the, it's the, it is like, like, think about like the ways that some religions abuse people. <laughs> like, um, right. and, and like, not just like sort of accidentally abuse them or something, um, but like systematically abuse them. Like in the, like, like in the case of like, I don't know. I guess this is a weird example, but like Scientology, right? Like uh, people who who join the Sea Org, which is like a an organization within Scientology, get abused economically and bodily, and like that's not something I want to happen. And maybe that's like a good sort of like sense, like like in a sense, like I don't want to to tolerate that, right? Like there's a sense in which like mm -hmm. um like bourgeois tolerance is like you know, well anyone can do whatever they want in sort of terms of religion because it's up to them. They have the freedom of conscience to do so. But there are there are types of behavior that shouldn't be tolerated in like the 
bodily harm and like physical and mental and economic harm of people shouldn't be one of those things that we accommodate in society. That's bad. Um, so that so there, cults are bad. That's all I'm trying to say. And I think that like someone should stop cults. And like, <laughs> oh, like okay, there, there's also the the opportunity for this to be completely bad though too, right? Like, um, you know, you could definitely have a government coming into your place of worship and saying like, sorry, you have to serve in the military or something. That would be, I think atrocious if were that to happen. Um, so sort of a double-edged sword, I suppose, where this is um, not all bad, but has some definite dangers. Yeah. I think to um, another, so like not just uh, cults that are abusive, but also like regular old generally acceptable, um, religions often hide behind the freedom of conscience stuff to license being extremely bad uh just to take a a very relevant example here i think um there's been a number of uh catholic schools mostly jesuit schools in the u.s uh who have been invoking the freedom of conscience stuff specifically to refuse allowing their faculty to unionize yeah um which is like irony among ironies because uh like if you i mean Catholic social teaching is not Marxist, but like if you were going to invoke freedom of religion, uh, you would have to contend with the fact that Catholic social teaching is pro-union like that is true. Um, But like it doesn't really matter because in a bourgeois liberal society, like it doesn't it's not like you can go to court and then like a judge is going to be like, yeah, well, you're you're not being faithful to like, you know, the religious tenets that you say that you are like judges can't do that. Um, And so what happens is they end up using this freedom of conscience sort of uh, dynamic um, to explicitly oppose like worker struggles and in those kinds of cases like yeah they should not be allowed um, to have that kind of leeway or that kind of special treatment just because like you know they say that like people go to heaven in this way or that way right um, I think that's like a, a point that people of faith should be open to right it's like understanding when our own kind of religious traditions are actually being used to uh stop like material liberation for actual human beings yeah like we should be on the side of uh wanting to discipline those our own religious traditions in those cases yeah i think so um i mean like a skepticism towards this is right i think is right like you should be skeptical of of like someone trying to exercise power over your religious beliefs uh but you should not be skeptical over someone trying to exercise the material conditions that people live in like yeah exactly. like they should be good yeah. and adequate <laughs> So that they can, like, yeah. self-determine their own life or something. Yeah, and also, the the other piece of this is, like, okay, the history of communist states and religion obviously is super messy and not in any way clear or obvious, but, like, there are important and interesting cases of social states affirming, like, going out of their way to affirm religion in a number of, of ways. I mean, we talked about that with the DPRK, uh like i was just i was reading a little bit more about uh christianity in the dprk and uh, i read this thing about how like i guess um kim jong-un went to russia and he was like really impressed by all the churches that were there um and he was like how come we don't have orthodox churches in the dprk so they like built one and then they sent people to go to seminary in russia and then they came back and like you can go to like an orthodox church in the dprk now just because right um and the same in like in cuba like they've built a number of uh you know state-sponsored like church building projects like it's not as though uh that like certain socialist or communist states don't want you to be 
religious. It's just that like they don't want religion to be the way in which, you know, you or like they don't want it to be the way in which people undermine the actual socialist project. And historically, like they've kind of ever reason to feel that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is definitely a messy situation for sure. All right. Well, uh, we have done some pretty like education heavy episodes <laughs> this week and uh, last week, but hopefully they have been uh, useful. It's kind of like, I mean, we do education episodes occasionally, but it's outside our usual fare, I think, to like really dig into some texts like this. Um, but there are a few exciting things down the pipe um, since this is coming out like way later. I guess uh, it's worth mentioning a couple of episodes we have planned. Um, so one is uh, we're going to do an episode on uh, Black Elk um, and a book written by uh, Damien Costello about Black Elk and Catholicism. Uh, that's going to be really good, I think. Um, a couple other uh, episodes on liberation theology with people who actually know what they're talking about coming on the horizon. Um, but yeah, uh, I think hopefully these kind of like Marxist detours have been useful in trying to dig through what's actually going on in like the history of Marxist interpretation. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us all over the internet. We are on Twitter at The Magnificast. We're on Facebook at The Magnificast. We have a discussion group on Facebook called The Magnificast Basement. Um, you can also support us financially at patreon.com slash the Magnificast, uh, or you can pick up a neat sticker or a t-shirt or whatever at redbubble.com slash people slash the Magnificast. Um, some other points of interest, I guess, uh, a little while ago, we were doing this thing where if you signed up to donate at our Patreon at $2, um, by a certain time, then we would send you a, a neat, uh, enamel pin sort of based on, um, this carving done by Luis Espinal. Anyway, you know about it already if you are one of those people. Uh, but the the pins are uh, are made, I guess. So hopefully we'll be able to send them out sometime soon. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, in the meantime, we are also uh, sort of happy and obliged to remind people that we're part of two podcast networks. One, Theology Corner. Lots of good stuff there. Um, friendly anarchism is there as we always like to to plug and mention um Catherine's one of the best uh and then also uh critical mediations with red left radio and season of the bitch and uh, a number of other podcasts there um so check those out and if you haven't already check out amaria armstrong's new podcast under thought um she's just, like worked really hard to actually produce really good episodes that are really thoughtful and uh, I mean, the episode zero is like exploring what podcasts are and like how they can actually operate. And um, she does a really good job, I think, drawing that out. And she did the music for our podcast. So if you like all of that, um, you should take the rest of what she's up to. Uh, all right. Outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside.